Take your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 15, if you would. Today we are in our fourth and final uh, installment of our study of what's commonly called the, the prodigal son. Um, I wouldn't normally ask things like this, but if you've not been here for the whole series, it sort of builds a little bit. And if you had missed especially last week's about uh, the father's love and the way he covered the prodigal shame, I think that would be a help to all of us. I've, I've personally been um, helped and instructed by this study, and I'm going to ask the Lord for help one more time as we, as we look into this very familiar story. So go ahead and stand with me if you would. We'll read the story in its entirety and make some comments <clears throat> along the way. Jesus is near the end of His earthly ministry. Crowds are still gathered around Him. People listening to what he's saying. Today, in this setting, the context, two, a large crowd's there, but they're really kind of grouped into two people, two kinds of people, and we'll see this in the first few verses. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. This is a complaint, this is an argument that the Pharisees had made for some time that Jesus' love and affection for sinners was somehow insulting to a holy God. They saw this as beneath the, the character of a rabbi to eat with someone um, that had a reputation. Jesus had tried multiple times to correct their thinking. He made this point well, it's the sick people who need a physician, not the whole. And they couldn't get it. Their hearts were genuinely darkened in religious pretense, self-righteousness. Jesus spoke aggressively towards these kinds of people. His harshest words for religious people who had no relationship with God. But make no mistake, He loved them. He, he wanted he wanted them to amend their ways, or He wouldn't have wasted words on them. And so, the next words, while they comfort sinners' hearts, they were really meant to um, find target in the sinners who were self-righteous, the Pharisees and scribes. Two parables are told. One's about a lost sheep. And the whole point about a man finding a lost sheep is this, when he finds it, he rejoices, there is joy. A lady loses a silver piece, probably a coin. When she finds it, the theme is, she rejoices. Um, there's, there, there's, there's a celebration. And the theme of Luke 15 is this, is that when lost things are found, heaven rejoices. And it makes God's heart happy. These, these men were missing that. And so he tells this third parable to really punctuate the point. He colors it much more richly and deeply than the previous stories. He, he goes into a depth really, as we have studied, to give us a context of all the cultural offenses that would have taken place here. And we, we've discussed those at some length. And, and so the story begins again in verse 11. And he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me a portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. The insults here are, are many. 
You don't ask a man for an inheritance before he dies, especially in this culture. You, you, you don't liquidate land as a Jew. It was given by God. You don't liquidate that. He was throwing away centuries of inheritance to the wind. He, he stopped identifying as a Jew. He goes to the far country to live with them. Um, the insults here are just replete. But this is what this young man does. And then verse 14, And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to assist in that country. This is begging. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine, an insult to his Jewish heritage. And he would fain have filled the belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And this is a speech he's rehearsing in his mind and heart. But then Bob says he arose. He goes beyond the contemplation. He goes to the action. And he arose and came to his father. And when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran. I made this point. Jewish men do not run. It's indignant. It, 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 it's to Arabic culture, Middle Eastern culture, this is an indignity. But he does so to shelter the young man from the abuse of the villagers that is going to come. He literally cloaks him in his righteousness, taking on a greater indignity than the son himself had. It was a great way off. He saw him, had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, now he's beginning the speech that he's rehearsed, Father, I have sinned against heaven in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father interrupts him and does not let him get to be part about a servant because the father's not going to let him earn his way back. Getting back in the family is a matter of grace, not works. But the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe, take on my majesty and put it on him and put a ring on his hand that, I get, that gives him authority of the family and shoes on his feet. These are tokens of sonship. And bring here the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. It was probably safe for a wedding, but this rejoining of, of, of people needing reconciliation is greater than that. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and found, and they began to be merry. Now the final part of the text. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. This is a public event. And he called one of the servants, the word there actually means boy, and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him. The word received means reconciled with him. Safe and sound. The older brother, and he was angry, and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and entreated him, pleaded. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, and neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. Can you hear the Pharisee? And yet thou never gavest me a kid, 
that I may make us merry with my friends, not the family, but with friends. But as soon as this thy son, and can you hear the disdain? But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said to him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. And it was meat, it was necessary, it was right, it was good, that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again, and he was lost and is found. Our Heavenly Father, I, I pray that we would receive the instruction and enlightenment that you attend. Lord, as you preserve this word for people like us to read, two centuries removed from when it was written. Lord, parables are mirrors. May we see ourselves. They are windows to see a truth. I pray we would find it. And I ask for your help. Lord, applying these things to all of our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for standing. <clears throat> Those who put the scriptures together came to this story and they called it, you know, the story of the prodigal son. Prodigal means wasteful. And, and that's what really happened with this young man in the faraway land. He, he wasted. He, he threw his inheritance to the wind. And it, it is a fitting title. We have chosen a different title. We're calling it The Tale of Two Sons. And that's really the way the text starts. A man had two sons. And we can think, and not wrongly so, that the tale is really contrasting the way two sons behave. And, th and that's true. But another possible title might be this, Behold the Love of a Father. Because really what's highlighted in greatest focus here is the way the father responds, responds to two sons who both are equally insulting. And that is the common thread in the story, the way the, the father behaves. Behold what manner of the love the father has you know, shown to us. Jesus tells a story to an audience made up of two, uh, roughly two kinds of people. And there are the self-admitted sinners whose lifestyle you know, has lived away from God. It's somewhat overt. It's brashly lived. And of course it comes and has come for these people with significant consequence. Their godless choices have led them to harsh realities, difficulty, and severe deprivation. The second audience is really the target all along in the story. The religious elite of Jewish culture and religion, the Pharisees. They were also the Sadducees and, of course, the scribes. Um, these were Jewish disciples um, who revered the law. But in time they forgot the law was a schoolmaster. It was simply a pointer to Christ. Hey, you can't reach this bar. What are you going to do? You can't measure up. You, you can't attain perfection. It's a schoolmaster. The law was intended to show us our need for a Savior. But they tried to find salvation in keeping the law. Now that's delusional. We prove our sinfulness every day. And these men, if they would have been looking, could have found it in themselves as well. They were deceived. They thought keeping the law as poorly as they did was redemption. And through that, a grace could be given in favor with God. And since they were far more earnest than the average person in keeping the law, they looked at others with disdain. They became inwardly corrupt and prejudiced, self-righteous and prideful. 
Now, power came with their position. They made an uneasy alliance with the Roman government. The Jews had been stubbornly obstinate. Uh, they didn't like um, being ruled over. So these Roman governors made an alliance with the Pharisees. And they said this, we will grant you power to really judge over the affairs of your nation and especially your religion. And in agreement, I, I, we want you to give us peace, complicity. Just don't give us a hard time. Let us rule over you. And, and that agreement was, was made. And the power given by the Pharisees was abused. These men, for the entirety of Jesus' public ministry, had opposed him. It's all throughout the gospel. They opposed Jesus at every turn. And as he gained popularity, their hatred rose correspondingly. Jesus was seen as a threat. They, 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 didn't, uh, they didn't like the way he was attracting a crowd. And in their self-righteousness, you know, not, wanting, not wanting their positions diminished, uh, they began to throw rocks at him. And isn't that a human principle? We make ourselves more beautiful by making other people look ugly. And they did that. Hey, he breaks the Sabbath. He blasphemes. He has no authority. He has distorted doctrine. He is of Satan. And here, he eats with sinners. They viewed Jesus' time spent with sinners as complicity, as culpability of you know, agreeing with their, with their sins. And, and certainly when someone lives with the world in such a way that they never uh, confront them, uh, extend grace towards them, then certainly, but that's not, Jesus was the doctor giving the medicine. He was the man extending grace. He was healing them. Not just their bodies, but their hearts. The argument made in verse 2 of our chapter is that you are evil because you eat with evil people. And their angst and hard heart, their deception and alienation from grace and love became the target of Jesus' precisely aimed story. Jesus doesn't tell this story solely to comfort the prodigals of life and their hearts. All of us could identify in some measure. But chiefly to shock and expose the Pharisees, the self-righteous, and understanding the magnitude of God's grace and the depth of their own sin. To point out that the overt sinners aren't the only prodigals. That they were too. And not just that, but in truth, they were actually in a greater disadvantage of ever reaching heaven for the blindness of their own spiritual need. Hey, if I'm a sinner and I see it, there's hope for me. But if I'm self-righteous and don't see my sin, what hope is there for me? And there was none for these men at this point. This was hardly Jesus' first attempt to reach these men's hearts through, through wisdom and riddle and, and theological argument. Jesus had tried many times to, to soften these hard hearts. Jesus actually told an abbreviated version of this colorful story in a different, in a different time. The, the Pharisees had Jesus come to Jesus and they had questions for him about his authority. And Jesus turned the tables and talked about, well, where did, the, where did John Baptist's authority come from? That was a hot potato question for them, so they ignored it. 
And so he says, well, let me ask you a question. He's pretty smart. He said, a man had two sons. He asked them both to do his bidding. One said he wouldn't, but later repented, and he did. Another said he would do it, but he didn't. Now, which one, you know, has love for the Father? Which one is obedient to the Father? And amazingly, they answered correctly, the first son, the one who said he wouldn't, but repented. He said, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that's why all the sinners and the prostitutes and, and all these evil people will enter the kingdom of heaven before you. Because you say you will, but you won't. That's, ex that's being exposed. And here again, he's telling that same story in a much more elaborate and detailed and colorful way. Abbreviated version goes like this. A man had two sons. One descends into the consequences of evil choices that resulted in dishonoring his father, squandering an inheritance, and identifying with the world. And it left him empty and hopeless. But that low estate made him come to his senses. The word we might use is repented. And his view of his father changed. So the first thing that happens, my dad, my dad was about keeping rules. My dad was about squandering uh, you know, my, my freedom and, and all on. My dad was all this. And suddenly he sees his father differently. Hey, maybe my dad's rules had reasons. And, and my dad was more generous than I thought. And he was keeping me from harm. And whatever else is true, his motive was love. And the view of his father changed. His rules, his lifestyle, his generosity and goodness could now be clearly seen. And he goes home. The father races to the son, trying to outdistance him to the village where no doubt he would receive incredible scorn for all the indignity he caused his father and his household. He races to him, covering him, granting him renewed sonship authority and position. He reconciles in incredible grace and mercy. It is an incredible picture. He takes his shame by creating a greater scandal. A man who should not run, runs. The son should have been kissing the father's feet, but the father is kissing this uh, filthy inside and out son. It's a beautiful story to our ears, but Jesus' audience heard it as shocking, galling, and incomprehensible. But nevertheless, this is my assessment, the hurting hearts of the Jews, of, the, of Jesus' audience, to believe in such grace and forgiveness tugged at the, their heartstrings. And I'm talking about the sinner's heartstrings. They may have been the first to experience amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like us. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And I would have sung that, but that wouldn't have been pretty. But listen, but sadly, for some, grace is not amazing. It's resented and vilified. The Pharisees' ears and hearts would have perceived the story of the father as egregious, a violation of dignity. How can a father who's been so abused receive a son like that? He squandered all. He talked ill of him. He spent everything. He, he lived like the world and worse. He fed swine. 
all of this was indignant and unrighteous to them that he allowed his son's sins to go unpunished. <laughs> but they missed it. The prodigal son's sins did not go unpunished. The father took the shame. Whatever they thought about the young man, there were many who now looked at the father as worse. And that may be hard for all, our, our cultural understanding, but I promise you that's how this is viewed. And by the way, was the father weak? Let me, let me put it in, in, in terms all of us here can relate to. Who is the stronger man? The one who forgives or the one who will not? And have we not all been there? Seriously? And for those of you who have chosen forgiveness, there's a strength involved in that, isn't there? Who is the stronger one, the one who absorbs and overlooks a transgression or the one who will not? Um, this reminds me that I have an obligation to have the strength of the Father. It's the call of Ephesians chapter 5, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be you kind to one another tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, the Father in the story, hath forgiven you. But the Pharisees could not and they would not. Their response to another sin had none of that grace. And they were creating sin where none existed in the Father. There was no inward glance, no realization of their own wayward, prodigal, self-righteous heart. They, have been, they may have lived with God on their lips, the law, but their hearts were far from Him. Jesus talked about that. The, the people like that could be in Matthew, in Matthew 15. These people honor me with their lips, but they don't do what I say. In Isaiah, I think chapter 29, the same thing is said. These people, they, they, come, to, they come to the temple, they, they offer these sacrifices, and then they go live like the world. This young man is reflecting the story. Look at me in verse 25. Now this elder son was in the field, and that he was coming, drew nigh to the house, and he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants, a young boy, and asked what these things meant. This was a, this was a village celebration. Little boys, young men would have been all over the place. You can't, a, a, a giant picnic, or maybe a wedding outside would be a, a familiar setting. It's an incredible scene. The elder son comes from a field, and he's inquiring, what's going on? And the response of a young boy infuriates him. But the young man picked his words carefully. Thy brother has come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him. And I went through that last week. The word received doesn't mean your brother's come home, but it means this, that your brother's come home, and he and the dad are good. He and the dad are good. He's not good with it. I just want to stop and consider something here. There's getting ready to be an outburst. <laughs> and what's in his heart is going to be spoken to us. 
you know what he was mad about? Um, the dad receives the son, but what's happening is money is being spent. The fatted calf, one of the most important things in the whole ranch, um, is being spent. And the, the elder brother doesn't want any part of that. His concern had nothing to do about the injustice of his father's heart. Who had been slighted in all this deal? Who had been slighted? The dad. The older brother's feigning taking up his offense. But his concern is not about the injustice of his father's heart, but the injustice done to his future pocketbook. Save the father. This family's dysfunctional. Right? Aren't we all? I'm not trying to make the story bigger than it should be. If the elder brother cared about the dad in his, in his, his heart, where was he when the younger brother took off? In Jewish tradition, it was the eldest brother's job to protect the family. That was their job. Your job is to protect the family. So if you care about dad so much, where's, the, where's, where's an older brother racing to a younger and saying, what has gotten into you? What are you thinking? This is a historic amount of inheritance here, passed down from the days of Canaan. You, you, you want that? You've insulted dad by wanting him dead before his time. And why can't you come to your senses? Well, the, I'll tell you why he didn't, because the older brother already hated the younger brother way before this event. And truth be told, the elder brother already hated the dad. There was no appeal. All he wanted was the same thing the prodigal wanted, the money. And he proves it in every way. He becomes angry at the reconciliation. And then here's what he does. He dishonors his dad by refusing to go in. We just read that as kind of like a logistics. It's not that. It's not just logistics. It's not that he wouldn't walk through a door. It's that he would not dishonor the decision of his father. That's what that is. This is an equally egregious um, assault to the father's character as what the young man's was. And this one's even a little more public because the whole community is there. These little boys are there. In other words, people are going to find out that the elder brother's there. He won't go in. Why wouldn't he go in? You know, humans love a good scandal. And the father goes out and pleads with him, come back. Same thing he wanted from his younger son. He said, uh, don't be offended. See, the more, the more important thing here is just that our family is together. But he wouldn't. Instead, he, he, he gets wrathful now. He gets, he gets angry accusatory. And so he does this. He first, he starts comparing. <laughs> Don't we all do this? This is, this, there are so much of us in here. He starts comparing. Well, hey, lo, all these days, I've, I've been right here by your side. I've always done these things. I've never, I've never, uh, you know, done anything wrong. I've always been right here on the ranch. I've never transgressed. If one single statement 
spoke of their delusion, that was this one. I think all of you would not look at your parents and said, I've never done anything wrong. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's a psychosis, but... Um, And then he accused him of favoritism. Well, you gave him the fatted calf, you never gave me squat. Never gave me anything. I, I don't want to be too pointed, but does, do any of you argue, identify with this in your families or with friends or anybody else? They'll never gave us me a party. And then he moves thoroughly to vilification in verse 30. Hear the scorn, but this thou son. Not my brother, not our family, but this thou son. When he comes, what, what, what's the whole implication there? You got to get this. What's the elder brother implying? He's implying not just a sin for the son, but a sin for the father. Hey, God, you're unjust. And he couldn't see that clearly. But that's what he's doing. I don't like the way God does things. God's been unfair to me. I've tried to serve him low all these many years, and I've gone through this problem and this problem and this problem. Is anybody familiar with that kind of thinking, maybe? If not in yourself, at times, seen it in others. You forgave him and let him back. Now, I, I think this is deep, but I want us to get it. He's accusing the father of an evil. That family honor was more important than family love and bond. He's asking the father to give him an apology for receiving the son. The dad, the son, they're standing there. And I'm, I'm coloring the picture more. I see them surrounded by a crowd now as people begin to filter out the house. And they're all whispering and aghast. That would have been culturally forget, you know, fitting. And he's pleading with his son in front of this crowd to, to forgive, and he won't. And he looks at his son, the dad, and says, You're, all that I have is yours. It's, it's really always been yours. And, and, and you've always been here. What we have as a family is more important than wealth, to Daniel's point today, than dignity. Um, here's what he's saying. You will always be with me. All I have is thine. The inheritance could be, can be, and should be yours. But it never was. Because he walked away from it. It doesn't say that in the text. Not in this text it doesn't. But in another I'm going to get my thoughts a little sync here, but I'm looking at the clock. You look back at verse 28, the father came out and entreated him. This was an appeal of the older brother to be okay. Okay. I want you to look up here for a second. This insulting behavior, these words that are heated being yelled in front of a crowd, the father, for the second time, taking abuse from a second son in grace. 
and he's appealing to him, but I want you to ask, you know, this is nuanced, at least for me, this is what I'm reading. The appeal for the older brother is to be okay with, not himself, not the dad, not the father, but with your brother. Story begins with two crowds. A bunch of sinners over here. A bunch of Pharisees over here. And Jesus is saying this, hey, why don't you be okay with them? Because there's no way you're going to be okay with me until you're okay with them. The dad, I, I don't think, that I can detect made it about himself. He said, I'm happy your brother's back. You should be happy your brother's back. We should be rejoicing. See, here's the truth. I'm, I, I, I'll make it a, 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 a quick application, a broader application. But here's the truth to bring this down to earth for us. When a sibling is not right with another sibling, then they're really, they're really, really going to struggle to be right with the parents. I mean, divorce kind of highlights that, doesn't it? You with me? When a sibling is not right with a sibling, it's really to be, it's hard to be right with dad. Because dad loves them both. Dad wants right for both of them. But from the perspective of each son, sibling, somehow it's not fair. You're not getting it. Somehow this person gets accused. And in real human relationships, that's fair. And this one, it's not. But you understand the dynamics here. That would be true in any of our families. There's no greater joy for, for a mom and dad that their children walk in truth. And not just do right, but to walk in that truth in with each other. Every, every one of us who are parents here can want a thousand things for our children, but we want them to be close and get along, right? Okay, let's broaden the application now. That's what the Lord wants for us as a church. It's really going to be hard for you. It's going to be hard for you if you all can't get along to be right with God. See, here's what we do. We do what the elder brother does. We justify. Oh, but what they did, and this is so indignant, and this is so wrong, and they hurt me so bad. Are you with me? And guess what? They probably did. And it probably was unfair. And you may have been slighted. Something may have been said. But here's the deal. You sitting there feeling self-justified for your hurt compared to this is going to go deaf on the ears of God. And the, the Bible teaches this. If you have ought against your brother, don't come down here to the altar. You go get it right with him. And then when you get it right with him, then you're positioned to see me right. But as long as you're harboring this stuff in your heart, you're going to be distorted. And you're not just your view of your brother, but your view of the love of God is going to be wrong. I, I, there's caveats. There are things. I, I get it. I'm talking about principle. 
It's going to be hard to be right with God when you are not right with people. The Pharisees were not right, would not see, would not grant these people even the ability to get saved. And the elder brother rejected it. I'm going to leap again. But let me finish the story. The parable here is a chiasm. Chiasm means it's two parts. It's didactic. There's two parts to it in terms of a polemic or a poetic sense. And this is the way Jewish people built lots of their stories. And so there's like, there's like stanzas, the easy way to understand it. In this poem, um, start here, there's eight points about the prodigal son. You know, his rejection, his descent, and then his recovery. Okay? And the eight is complete. And that's what the Jewish hearers were listening for. It's complete. So for the story to be a true chiasm, to be truly didactic, how many stanzas need to be on the opposite side? How many? Eight. There's seven. The elder son insults the father, his heart's away, and we're all waiting for him to do what? But he doesn't. The seventh stanza is left incomplete, and Jesus told the story that way on purpose. There's more to hear than we often hear. It's like an unfinished poem with no resolution. Because the Pharisees didn't repent, the elder son never got right with the father. Because he would not get right with the brother. I'm going to suggest to you that all the sins and offenses, the hurt and the insults and the indignity that the father endured didn't hurt his heart as much as the elder brother's inability to get right with him and his, and his younger son. In time, really, the eighth stanza does become complete. It'd go like this. While the father is appealing for the elder son to change his heart and celebrate with the theme of all this chapter, instead, the elder brother picked up two pieces of wood and they struck, he struck his father and killed him. Isn't that the end of the story? Yes, That's dramatic. But it's what happens to the person telling the story. Here's another way to look at this non-present eight stanza is Jesus is looking at each one of us today and saying, finish the story. Oh, I, I never, in all my obstinance, you know, pick up a stick and kill someone. But would you reject love? Have you? Are you? If you're here today, you know, we talk about this in terms of salvation, having a relationship with God the Father, through the provision of Jesus Christ and His atoning blood on the cross. He died for you on the cross. Like He did what no one can do. All your sins for your entire life, never will commit, were laid on Him, the just for the unjust. 
in an act of what's called imputation, all of your sins were laid on him. In an act of reciprocal imputation, all of his righteousness was granted to you if you'll receive it by grace through faith. Not of works, lest any man should boast. You may never strike him, but you can be indifferent to him. And I promise you, rejected love always hurts the heart of the person extending it. And today, if, if you'd be unsaved, why go another day insulting the Father and hurting yourself, cutting yourself off from an inheritance that God intended for all of us to know in heaven with Him? And for all of us here, church family, guest, if you and I can't look upon people, even the worst of people, or people who have violated our sensitivities, who don't meet with our exact standards or whatever else, if we can't even look upon people who have deeply hurt us without love, compassion, and forgiveness, I'm going to suggest to you, you're probably not seeing God right. You're just not messing that up. You may be messing this right here up with Him. The Pharisees never saw these people over here as worthy. So they could never understand the magnitude of God's grace. Can God's love in us be enough to help us cover other people's shame? To forgive? For us to have the strength that we need to?